Hello and welcome to Ditching Hourly. I'm Jonathan Stark. Today I am joined by guest So Heidi. Should I call you Heidi or So? <laughs> Heidi, welcome yeah. to the show. <laughs> Please call me Ho. Ho. Oh my God. Wait, we gotta start over. <laughs> I literally have never said that. Please call me Heidi. Some people write to me an email and they're like, So, and I'm like, No, that's definitely not my first name. Wow. Okay, word sandwich. That was very awkward. That was um, great. Apologies. No filter here. Perfect. Uh, okay. Well, you're going to fit right in. So let's start. <laughs> so for people who haven't heard of you before, yeah. uh, can you give listeners a little bit of context about who you are and what you do? Yeah, I imagine most of your listeners probably will not have heard of me. Um, so my name is Heidi. I go by Heidi. And um, <laughs> for many years, I worked in fashion. I, I had my own brand for a hot minute. I worked for a fashion brand for a hot minute and I learned neither of those paths were for me. Um, I kind of had a non-traditional start. I did not go to fashion school, but I broke into the industry um, for various through various reasons. And I learned that neither of those really worked well for me. So I kind of went out into this for freelancing pursuit. That was in around 2009. And I thought, oh, I can just like reach out to my network and make this happen. It didn't really go so smooth, um, but I figured out how to get work. And I was able to build up to a really, really sizable six-figure career um, in fashion, working a very comfortable, you know, 30 to 40 hours a week, which pay to hour ratio is not what you get when you work full time in the industry. It's it's very much known as a brutal, toxic industry that works you to the bone um, and tends to underpay. So I did that for about a decade. Um, alongside of that, I started creating YouTube videos just randomly and they kind of took off. Um, I started creating a bunch of courses and I was teaching stuff in person and ultimately in 2016, I took everything online and started teaching online. I grew to about six courses and that got overwhelming. And I ultimately wound up scaling it back to one flagship course that we run now, which is called Freelance Accelerator um, from Surviving to Thriving. The acronym is FAST. And so I now teach people in fashion, um, not just designers. We often say fashion designers because it's like a big bucket, but mm -hmm. um, various people in fashion, how to ditch the exhausted employee rat race and become successful fashion freelancers. Um, if they're feeling burnt out in their job or you know they're, they're trying to start their own line, it's not going as planned. Mm -hmm. um, freelancing is a really, really great alternative that a lot of people in fashion don't even totally know is an option. So there's my right. spiel. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, so let's unpack. There's a million things in there to unpack uh, <laughs> because the audience is just probably the, the least fashion friendly, right? Like just to, <laughs> just to work the stereotype. Yeah. But what, what does, if you go, when you went solo as a freelancer, what did you do? Like for a freelance, what? Like what? Like what services were they providing? Yeah, exactly. I have no clue. Like I have no clue. Yeah, totally fair. So I worked with brands to do everything from design to development. So I would work with them to come up with the trends and the research and then design the collection and then take the designs, put them into tech pack format, which is essentially like a blueprint for a garment. Mm -hmm. um, then take that tech pack, source it with different factories to get pricing, pick the factory, work with the factory and pick out fabrics and trims and then manage the whole production process to make sure that the garment is made correctly. Um, and so essentially going from the initial idea through bulk production of the garment. So that's what I did in my career. Not okay. all freelancers provide that full scope of service. Right. Okay. That's, that's starting to track and, and just not, not necessarily, I don't know if you can name names with clients, but like what kind of a client is it? Is it's like a target or like uh, just like a, an indie brand? Yeah. 
like yeah. their, their own retail shops? Like what sorts of people are in the market for those kinds of services? So it varies. Um, in my career, I did a lot of what I call air quote, middle America brands. Um, I was in the sort of lifestyle and <laughs> golf space, not a golfer myself, okay. um, not really my style, mm -hmm. but um, that was where I kind of started. I was ultimately able to branch out a little bit more into like some athleisure and some yoga lifestyle apparel, which was way up more on my alley. Um, and the brands that I worked with, as I said, middle America brands were they tend to be these brands. I could tell you the names. Nobody's heard of them. Even people in fashion like haven't heard of these brands. Um, you know, there's millions of brands out there. You can go into any store, um, whether it's Walmart or Target or a random store in like a small town. And there's going to be tons of labels. Like if you were to really look through all the clothing, there's tons of labels in there that we haven't heard of. Mm -hmm. um, so this middle America brand is kind of where I found a sweet spot in that they're brands that are kind of making mostly everyday clothes for everyday people. You haven't really heard of them. You know, it's not Chanel or it's not even like Gap or, you know, um, Tommy Hilfiger or something like that, Calvin Klein. You've never heard of them, but they're making everyday clothes for everyday people. And they're most of the time they're located somewhere in middle America. They're not in New York. They're not in LA. They're not in Dallas. They're not in London or something. They're located in these random places and they oftentimes have limited resources to local talent or okay. they need some type of support um, or they need such a wide breadth of support that they would hire full time but it'd be hard to find someone locally who could do all of those things in a full-time role they might have to hire like three people which could be really hard to justify three full salaries right mm -hmm. versus outsourcing to a freelancer who can specialize in that specific product and get them from design through through development. So that was a niche that I worked a lot with um, as far as the type of customer, yep. the type of brand, um, as well as the category of clothing. You know, I wasn't going out and doing like lingerie or swim or denim or something like that. Yep. Um, that was not, I didn't have those skills. There's different fabrics, different fit, different construction, different factories, all sorts of things. Um, and then I did dabble a little bit with like the startup brands, you know, these people who have this great idea and they want to do something and they just, they maybe like have a little more of a business mindset, but they don't know anything about fashion. They don't know anything about getting a product made. And there's a tremendous amount of opportunity in that space. Um, I think even more today than when I was at the peak of my freelancing career, um, COVID actually grew that space quite a bit, which is an interesting side story. Um, but those brands, they require quite a bit of handholding. And I learned for me, I didn't love that. I didn't love, um, it just, it just wasn't a better, a great match for me. I preferred to work with a brand that was a little bit established. They knew at least a little bit about, you know, manufacturing, um, have better funding oftentimes, right. not right. always, but typically, um, you know, but some of my students now they work with startups and they love it. They love helping them build their brand and the educational process that goes into that. So it can just depend. Um, okay. But that was that was more the the path I went down for type of customer as well as category of clothing. Got it. Yeah, it's super interesting. So when you, now this audience, when they hear startup, they're thinking like tech startup. But what you're talking about yeah. is <laughs> someone 
like what what does a fashion startup look like like somebody just decides like oh i've got this big instagram following or something and i'm gonna i i should monetize that with like a line something like that it could i mean it can look like a lot of different things so it can i mean the like one and a half star. I didn't work with very many startups. Like I literally, there was one that I did wind up working with on an ongoing basis because they they were able to pull some funding. Um, they were starting from zero. It was this man and this woman. They were business partners, and they had this idea. Um, you know, they for a product that they wanted in the market. Like they wanted to buy something, and they felt like they couldn't find it. Mm-hmm. You know, that's how a lot of ideas start, right? Okay. And um they had both gone to business school together. And so they were savvy in that way. Um, she was a fairly wealthy individual. And so she was kind of backing it with cash. And that was their startup. You have other people who, um, a, a lot of people actually who have gone to fashion school or who have even worked in the fashion industry want to do something on their own. They you know, might have an idea and they, they, they know a lot of parts of the process, but at some point you can't do it all yourself or, you know, you don't have all the expertise. And so they might outsource to a freelancer. Um, It can look like a lot of things. I mean, anywhere from that person in their basement working all by themselves to maybe a team of three that did a Kickstarter or something Mm -hmm. like that. Right. right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's various things along those lines. Um, Okay. It's pretty rare to hear about getting any type of VC um, in fashion, I do know one company, I actually interviewed them on my podcast, um, but it was like a wearable tech thing. So, right. you know, that is a little bit more in line with venture capital, but typically it's just people who have an idea and they bootstrap it somehow, whether it's Kickstarter, whether it's their own savings, whether they freelance on the side and they fund, they use their freelancing money to fund their brand. Mm-hmm. Um, it can look like a lot of different things. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it, it's sort of, it's one of those things where like everybody buys clothes, you know, so it's, yeah. it's, it's ubiquitous, but it never, I just never, ever think about any of the, the business behind it. It's kind of like, yeah. is, you know, is, is this coat worth this much money? And that's about all I think about. So totally. Yeah. But so there's a, is... there's so many moving pieces and parts to like, even just getting a basic t-shirt manufactured from scratch. Mm. There's a lot of nuances and moving pieces and parts. Yeah, I mean, the one thing you touched on that that would strike fear in my heart uh, <laughs> would be okay. I've got this idea. I could I could imagine, you know, f- sort of naively imagine like, oh, I've got an idea for some kind of shirt, or whatever, and and it's like, oh, I could imagine finding, maybe sketching it together, whatever. But like the idea of putting that into, I think you used the word blueprint to send to a factory overseas would be like that right there. That's the deal breaker piece for me. Like, because <laughs> I've had the same experience with book production where yeah. I mostly do digital. I, in fact, exclusively uh, pretty much do digital. I'm trying to think if there's an exception to that. No. And the few times that I've kind of like, well, let me just get some galleys printed, get run, do a test run and see what they look like. There's something torturous about that because the, the lead time is so long and you're basically 100% sure you're going to do something wrong and that first pass is going to be a mistake. Yeah. So it's like I can't imagine like how much worse it would be with a garment, which, you know, a custom garment that uh, it's pretty obvious what a like a five by eight business book is supposed to look like and still like, you can screw it up. So, yeah, you know, but anyway. I mean, I, I mean, it's sort of like. 
the average Joe wouldn't just go and like start putting up two by fours and building a house, right? Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of nuances. Like we need to make sure it's structurally sound and and all these other things that you and I, we're not architects or structural engineers. We can't think of that, right? And so it's the same with a garment, but actually on a much simpler scale. Um, so it is like a blueprint in the industry. It's called a tech pack, a technical package. Mm-hmm. And it's a, a document that someone like me, you know, or someone with experience in the industry, this air quote architect, um, we know all the things that we need to call out and all the specifications that we need to clarify for the factory and all the notes and details and questions that we have to answer and what fabric and where does the label go and how's the label sewn on and what color is the thread and what type of thread and what type of stitch goes here, right? (laughs) And what type of zipper and what is the pocket lining and how big is the pocket bag? Like all these different things. That's just, old hat to us, right? Like we, we just, we live and breathe that. So someone who has this idea for a brand, that type of document, this tech pack is very, very overwhelming. Yeah. You know, like you said, but you bring your idea to me. I know what the right question. Well, I don't freelance anymore, but someone like me, right. And you know, the right questions to ask. I know the right questions to ask. And then I know how to, and, and if you don't even know what questions to ask, I know what to tell you and suggestions to make and how to put this together so that it does get made. It's not going to get made right the first time. It's never going to get made right. But that's why we go through prototyping, right? So you get your first proto and your second proto and you make adjustments and and you communicate with the factory. Um, so hmm. yes, it's scary for someone like you, but there's architects, there's these experts out there that know how to do this. And that's why you hire someone. <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's the point I'm getting at, which is it's it's a perfect scenario for someone to just write a check to make that fear go away because yeah, it's it's an option, you know, they're out there. So what, what, uh, it feels like it's such a broad, I'm not sure how to ask the next question because it feels like overly simplified, like it's a universe of possibilities, but what are the top three, maybe types of fashion people, fashion designers or group of clients that you work with? What are the top three, call it professions that you would say that they mark themselves as? Yeah, you know? great question. As far as like maybe what their services might look like, yeah, not their like, specific services, but what bucket they might fall into. What bucket they fall into, right. Yeah. Um. So you've got your fashion. It's funny. I was on a coaching call with my students last week and someone was asking about this similar type of question. They were almost wondering like what title they should give themselves freelancer. And, you know, it can really vary because the term fashion designer in a really, really, really small company, that can actually mean the person that essentially does everything from start to finish. They do the techs to the tech packs. They do product development where they work with the factories to make sure that everything gets made right. And they do everything essentially from start to finish, even though their title is designer, fashion designer. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're in a really, really big company, you know, the roles are so much more specific. The fashion designer might literally only do design. Like come up with trends and sketch yep. and like draw an illustrator. Um, so, so that disclaimer aside, I would say the biggest buckets are going to be fashion designer, which we'll say is going to more be design and then probably a little bit of specking the garment, like translating their vision of design into what does this look like on a technical level? You know, because mm-hmm. from a sketch to technical we want to define some variables, right? Mm-hmm. Then you're going to have someone like um, technical designer, mm-hmm. um, also maybe called product developer. 
which is they don't, they're not totally involved in like the creative vision initially, but they'll then take that creative vision from the designer and they're responsible more for the technical components. So um, advising like, you know what, actually this type of zipper is going to work better because of this reason. Mm -hmm. And this type of construction technique is going to be more functional or what have you. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a big part of the role. Um, and, and in that role, they're also probably going to be responsible for working with the factories back and forth um, to make sure that all of that construction and those technical components were executed correctly. Yep. Then you've kind of got this third bucket, which I'm going to say, I'm going to call it pattern maker. Um, and the pattern maker, depending on the size of the brand that the freelancer or in-house person is working with, the pattern maker role can be a little bit different, but typically drafting the pattern, specking it for all the different sizes. So, you know, we draft it, let's say in medium to begin, and then you have to spec it out to like small, extra small, large, extra large, et cetera. Mm -hmm drafting all that pattern, and then working with the factory to really dial in the fit, which can often be like a whole, it, it crosses over quite a bit, but can be a little bit separate than the technical component um, to make sure that it fits right. If, you know, if we change fabric even slightly, the fit can really be affected. So to make sure like we're sampling in the right fabric, how does this fit? It fits great in a size medium, but if we scale that all the way down to extra, extra small, is it scaled down proportionally? So then we have, we wind up fitting all five or six or eight sizes that you're going to run. Hmm. And you really, um, there's a good bit of people that that do that in a freelancing capacity, um, pattern maker, fit expert, something like that. And so that really kind of covers mostly the whole process. You've got other outliers with, you know, sourcing specialists who really just work to find, you know, I want this sustainable fabric with these qualities and I need low minimums or, you know, something like that. Like I really need to source this really specialty item. So there's other outliers and textile designers who design, you know, it's a floral dress. Um, you can buy floral fabric off the shelf in bulk, but maybe you have a specific vision and you want to create this really beautiful watercolor floral. You can hire a textile designer to like create that floral from scratch. Um, that's all that textiles is actually a pretty big bucket as well. So I would say those four, the fashion designer, the technical designer and the product developers to the pattern maker and fit expert type of person is three. And then I would throw textiles in there. Cause that's a pretty big category. Mm, interesting. Yeah. It's fascinating. And there, I see a lot of parallels, uh, not, not with everything, but I do see parallels in the kind of software space where you've got, sure the air quotes designer who's kind of helping define what the, what, what the thing should look like, you know, what it yep. should feel like, what, what, what the user should feel like when they're using it, what things that they need to get accomplished. So it's very, that sort of high level, the highest level of building software, well, maybe not the highest, but like in this model, it's kind of like this architect or designer where they're kind mm -hmm. of like, these are the parts that we should use. This is what it should feel like. This is the vision. And, and then there's this, after that, there's this sort of continuum of things that happen downstream from that, that may, that may or may not be handled by specialized people. Like mm -hmm. you said, in a small company, the sort of in a small software company, it might just be the founder and, you know, non-technical founder who's essentially like a marketing and salesperson and like a air quotes CTO 
mm-hmm. who does make all of the decisions and picks the stack and all of the components that are going to go into it and this level of security and scale and all of that stuff and uh, but also builds it and also maintains it and also maintains the back end and does all of the all of the nitty-gritty work that would probably get outsourced or hired for in the future after they grow but yeah there's like it is wild to see parallels into dramatically different industries so yeah, i mean i think if you look in like like using a house again right because i always compare fashion to building a house i yeah. think mostly because the blueprint component people are like i don't need a tech pack let me just send my idea to the factory <laughs> okay cool let me draw a picture of a house and then like hire a crew to make it it's not going <laughs> to turn out right yeah so you know there it's similar i think in many industries you have a finished product how do you get to that finished product if you work backwards it's design technical product development i mean it, i think it's parallel for a lot of things yeah you also have supply chain and physical manufacturing which are very different but yeah um, but that it's it's wild i'm, I'm haunted yeah. by the the how big is the pocket bag supposed to be i'm like oh who would think of that like well like not having someone <laughs> i know but i've literally thrown away <laughs> pants that don't have the right size i've never heard the right? word pocket bag before but if is the pockets the are too you got small, what i meant when i said it yeah yeah, yeah. It took or me a like, minute. <laughs> I'll get, I'm going to give you another one that I think you're going to love just in terms of like fun. Um, you know, when you like zip up a jacket and at the top of the jacket, right up at your neck, there's like a little flap of fabric that like kind of protects your neck from the, the jacket yeah. zipper. Yeah. It's called a garage. A garage. <laughs> yeah. And so where the zipper like parks into the garage at the top of the zipper. <laughs> yeah. And um, that's something you have to think about. Right. How yeah, the number it, of like details. first you have to spec that there should even be a garage yeah. then like you have to spec that then you want to think about well what's the fabrication there right we want it something soft because it's going to be touching your chin mm-hmm. um yeah, yeah so there's another fun one for you yeah you don't want to get your beard caught in it totally yeah um it's so good <laughs> the I, garage <laughs> <laughs> so okay so let's let's sort of focus more on you now so you did freelance you help people what was that transition like where you you were doing the thing and then you transitioned into helping people do the thing you kind of seem like it feels like you and I do kind of this similar same types of things but for two dramatically different audiences is that what was that transition like for you yeah great question so I was freelancing and I was also sort of building this business on the side but pretty organically like literally in 2000 and i think it was 2009 i threw some videos up on youtube at the inspiration of my husband and i didn't think anything of it this is way back before youtube was really a thing um or nearly as big as it is now and then like i logged in a year later and it was i was like Oh, I made $300 in ad revenue. Well, people are actually watching my videos. Maybe there's something here. So that was like the beginning of it. And then I really just did stuff on the side. Um, I taught workshops and this was all, this was nothing to do with freelancing. I didn't even really talk about the fact that I was freelancing. I was teaching technical stuff. I taught people how to use Adobe Illustrator for fashion. And I was teaching people how to create tech packs. Um, because shocking, both of these very fundamental skills are very poorly taught in most fashion schools, even mm. still to this day. Right. Um, so that was the start. And then fast forward to uh, maybe like 2017. And I had slowly started talking about the fact that I was freelancing more with my audience. And I was getting um, a little more personal with them as to like, 
I mean, I was a teacher. I was, I, I got known as like the illustrator girl. So Heidi, the illustrator girl in fashion. Um, and I never was very personal with my content, um, my email list, or I wasn't even really being that strategic about an email list back at that time. Um, but I started to become a little more personal with my, my audience. And I was talking a little bit more about what I was doing and people were kind of getting interested. And I was like, and they were, what I was finding was they were like, wait, freelancing is a thing. Um, fashion is one of those industries, like, I think it's kind of this way in the film industry. And, and I know there's other industries as well, but an air quote freelancer is someone who works for a company essentially full time, but they don't get benefits. Um, they're required to come in on site and work 40 hours a week. They basically look and act like an employee. Yeah. Um, and they might work for a week. They might work for three months or however long. And then when they're done, they're basically unemployed again. Yeah. Um, I call it permalancing. I'm sure you've heard that term before. <laughs> yeah. I, I would refer to those as contractors, but I like permalancing better. So, yeah. But in fashion, they're called freelancers. Like, mm -hmm. literally, people say, I'm a freelancer. And I'm like, but you're working on site 40 hours a week for one brand. And then when that gigs up, you have to find another gig. Like, that's not really freelancing. Um, you have no freedom. You don't set your own rates. Um, but and if you search online for like freelancing jobs in fashion, that's what's listed. It's like 40 hours a week on site, but it's temp. It's a temp job. Temp um, job. Yeah, that's another. Yeah, like a staff temp job. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've always found it actually quite abusive. Yeah. Um, and in many places, it's technically illegal, mm -hmm. but they get away with it because you know people are just lined up to work in fashion and they'll just do it. Mm. So I started talking about what I was doing. And they were like, wait, no, you're like working with multiple brands and you're working from home. And how is this working? And so I, I was like, oh, I guess people didn't like really realize this was a thing. Um, and the more I learned about that, I was like, yeah, that makes sense. I just, I just didn't have that realization. So as I started talking about it more, I thought, well, maybe I could teach people how to do this. And, you know, I took a small beta group of students as I think most people do when they start any type of course and they prepaid and I ran them through a program. And I was like, let me see if I can get people results because maybe I am a unicorn. Actually, I had this fear. I was like, maybe I just kind of lucked out. And so I actually spent like two years. I I ran students through beta. I um, did a bunch. This was before my podcast um, officially launched. Um, I started reaching out to people on LinkedIn that I didn't even know, but they had the word freelancer in their title, something about fashion and freelancing. Yep. And I was like, Hey, are you like actually freelancing for multiple brands? And so I started finding people that were doing the same thing that I was doing. I had to kind of prove to myself that this was possible, that other people were doing it and that I could teach other people to do it. Right. Um, yeah, cool. you know, that I wasn't just some random outlier. Um, otherwise in like, in my gut, in my bones, I would never be able to actually sell something if I was like, I don't know, can I get you results? I'm not sure. So I spent <laughs> about two years like researching the market. Arguably, I spent too long on it, probably because I was just scared. Yeah. Um, and I was just doing this all on the side, still freelancing um, and running my other courses as well. These By this time, they were all online and, and self-paced, evergreen type of courses. Right. Um, what was the motivation though? Why the side hustle? What do you What do you mean? Why this? Like, like why mean? were you... I mean, a different path could have been just like freelancing with bigger and bigger brands and like getting very successful that way. Like what was there yeah. something that that like what? Because this is more of a teaching thing. Yes, very so, much. Right. So like is what was the motivation there? Did you just you just like it better or were you I getting think dissatisfied? I definitely, yeah, I think I definitely liked it better. I mean, listen, freelancing is great 
and you have a lot of freedom, but you still essentially have a boss or you have a lot of bosses. A lot of bosses, right? You have a lot of people that you're reporting to. And um, I, it's, I mean, it's way, to me, it's still way better than working in-house a million times. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, running this educational side hustle um, is I'm in 100% control. Okay. And I, I mean, I was not charging hourly. I never actually charged hourly as a freelancer. Yay. But on some level, you're still trading time for money. Okay. I feel. Mm-hmm. And this educational component, um, I mean, I, I just started to become a little bit obsessed with it. Like I, um, when I first went online, I took a course through Ramit Sethi and mm-hmm. um, learned how to sell online. And I was just fascinated with the whole process, like going through and doing customer research and then building out sales pages and then building out funnels and doing webinars. And, and I also love to teach too. Um, that's something I did find. I do love to teach. Um, I really get fascinated and intrigued by explaining the why behind things, not just like, here's how you do it, but making sure people conceptually understand the nuances so that they, they just get it. It makes sense. Not like, okay, the checklist do A, B, C, and D. Um, that's a very interesting point, actually. Yeah. That, that why, (laughs) and really just loving teaching and also the utter lack of a boss. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, it was when I was teaching Illustrator um, and I was teaching in person, and I would have people that would come to my workshop um, who had been through some Illustrator course at FIT, the big fashion school in New York, Fashion Institute of Technology, but they had been through it with like a graphic design teacher and they couldn't really relate. Then they were like trying to watch videos online, they couldn't really figure out how to do it. And I would show them something and they would just have this massive moment. And they were like, I literally learned more from you in this last hour than I've learned in like the last three years trying to do this. Yeah. Um, and I just learned I have a knack for like explaining things. And I really enjoyed that. So I took it and ran. Um, and then as I was building up both businesses, you know, I was still freelancing and then I'm building up my online business and I started getting, I never really took it seriously. Like when I was teaching in-person workshops, I was making like an extra $5,000 a year, like nothing, just mm-hmm. pocket change. Mm-hmm. But once I went online and I started learning how to do this and I was like, wow, I can reach a lot more people and the potential is unlimited. And I got so fascinated with the whole like sales psychology and, and all that stuff. Um, and I got, I started getting traction and I had some like really great launches and I was like, oh, I can do this. <laughs> um, <laughs> I can make some money doing this. And so I slowly phased out my freelancing in about 2019. Yep. And I just had to like, I, I got to the point where I couldn't keep up with both. And I said, what do I enjoy doing more and where can I have a bigger impact? And I very much enjoyed the courses and the teaching more and running the online business. And I also felt like there's a ton of other freelancers out there that can design and do development for brands, but there's literally nobody who's teaching this stuff. Mm. Um, even to this day, there's not a ton of resources on tech packs and illustrator. There's some, there's more than there were when I started, but there's really nothing on freelancing specific to fashion. And, um, I hate being that person. that's like, I don't have any competition and I have competition in other ways, but uh, I just felt that I could have a much bigger impact that way. And I just love it way more. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you're preaching to the choir, but I just wanted it to be like spelled out for the, the dear listener. It reminds me a little yeah. bit of um, Chris Doe over at the future. 
where he, they have courses about you know it's the same kind of you know it's like it's like the art and business of design it's not just mm -hmm. like one or the other and it, it's 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 a cool at first it kind of like i was like mm, that's interesting you know like how to design a logo or in your case how to uh, i don't know how to do a tech pack in adobe illustrator or whatever however sure. you would probably say that but you should then use there's excel this... not adobe illustrator sorry i have to drop that in there use what excel for excel? tech excel oh you do not use it in illustrator it's a very hot button for me so keep going oh sorry yeah, yeah, yeah. i don't <laughs> know okay. what i'm talking about but it's just no like... you don't it's fine it's okay. really cool <laughs> yeah um and, but then there's this meta layer, like, here's how to do your craft better. Mm -hmm. And then there's this meta layer of like, here's how to like approach financial freedom, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. It's like this business mm -hmm. layer. Um, I don't know how you get into lifestyle stuff, but you've mentioned a couple of times about like working reasonable hours instead of crazy hours and, and taking control of your life and having, not being sort of uh, I forget the word you use, but like sort of taken advantage of by a single whale client mm -hmm. pretend in pretend air quotes, pretending you're a freelancer. <laughs> right. So how long did it take you? What did it, so, so you did a couple of launches while it was, while you were still freelancing. How long would you say you were doing both things? Just roughly speaking, um, like a year or two years? No, it was a little longer than that. I mean, I started teaching workshops like in person in, oh gosh, I'm going to say, oh, well, actually it's pretty early, like 2011 or 12, maybe. Mm -hmm. And then I did that through 2015. But again, it was very much a real small, like I did, you know, five or six workshops a year and they had, you know, five or 10 people and it was just some extra real small amount of cash. Yeah. It just feels more like research than anything to me. So Okay, yeah. so then and then so when I actually went online was 2016 and started building this out strategically as a business. Mm -hmm. And so I did that in tandem with freelancing until about 2019. By 2019, I had really slowed down on my freelancing. I still had a couple clients, but I wasn't, you know, really taking anything new. I wasn't pursuing anything new. Um, I, I knew the ultimate path was going to be the courses exclusively. Mm -hmm. But I, I was having a little bit of, um, I don't know if imposter syndrome is the right term, but I was hesitant. Like, can I be that teacher that isn't doing, you know? <laughs> yes. I know um, that very well. Like, you know? no, a lot of people, a lot of people bring that up. There, there's another version of it, which is, yeah. Cause that like, you know, those who can't teach it, totally. it's, that just haunts people. Yeah. And it's like, like I should do a whole series on that because that's a that is a dumb thing <laughs> that is just dumb but like, it gets in our heads it gets it's in everybody's heads like that thing that idea caught on like like the original meme and it's just ridiculous like and it's so patently obvious it's so patently wrong mm -hmm. to anybody who's ever had a good teacher like yeah. Yeah. just think about it like having a good teacher is like a magical experience. I can count on one hand the good teachers I've had in my life. Yeah. And it's like, were they, you know, one of them was like a religion teacher, you know, and what was, what was the, like, what was the thing that he wasn't good enough to do? Be a priest? Like, I, <laughs> you can hear, I'm like, I, I hate that. You do. You're very passionate. That's a hot button for you. Oh, yeah. 
I cannot stand that. And the yeah. other thing, the other thing that I think is uh, maybe more, it's, it's an irrational. I think that's an irrational obje objection. I think a, a rational objection from, from the standpoint of, um, uh, sort of not, not, not I don't want to say naivete, but just like lack of experience like that is that people who are technical, they're technicians, whether they are, um, I don't know, sewing garment. It's not really what you're talking about, but like, you know, if in my world, it's like, if you're a coder and you build software, you're a builder or you build a house, you're a general mm -hmm. contractor or a carpenter or something, you imagine that and you start to advise people about how they should build software or how they should build a house, you you start to imagine or there's this fear early on that your advice will turn into crap over a relatively short period of time mm -hmm. because you won't be able to keep up with changes in the industry or best mm -hmm. practices or whatever. And that I can understand that fear. I had that fear, but it is unfounded because there are lots of ways to keep your that advisory saw sharp without you actually doing this doing stuff. it yeah yeah it's um so so as i mentioned a couple of times in the conversation i i grew to i ultimately grew to six courses which was way bloated we wound <laughs> up killing five of them um, about almost two years ago and we now just have the one flagship program but um I stopped teaching Adobe Illustrator. I stopped teaching tech packs. Am I still super savvy at those? Yes. Do I still feel totally confident teaching that? Yes. Um, but I actually got to the point that I, first of all, felt like I need to focus to, in order to do the best job possible in the freelancing space. I need to focus exclusively on that. Hmm. And I also, um, just because I wasn't practicing in Illustrator and, and doing actual design on a day-to-day -day basis in there, it didn't mean I couldn't do it, but I got to the point that I actually didn't want to keep up with it. I was like, yeah. I don't care to keep up with all the updates and okay, wait, this is a really cool new tool. And here's how we could apply it to fashion and update the course. Like I was like, I'm done with that. And so I retired those programs because that to me felt like the right thing to do. As far as freelancing goes though, let's be honest so much of it is like general marketing and sales strategy and positioning and niching and messaging and all that sort of thing right yeah 100 um, yeah that mm -hmm. that's still that's what i do every day in my online business right and there's so much that translates directly into freelancing despite the fact that you know what we were talking about i think right before you hit record um all the people in, in fashion want someone specific to fashion. Mm -hmm. I'm like, well, I'm actually using a lot of my online business strategies and applying them to fashion, but I promise you guys it works. <laughs> I don't <laughs> say that outright. Yeah. Um, well, let's, let's get into that. So like, because I, I love the opportunity to talk to someone from a dramatically different space than my listeners are used to, are in or used to, um, used to hearing about, uh, shout out to Allison though. I know you're, you're out there and the parallels the, the, that you just brought up. So like, what is, oh, this is a gigantic question. So just take it any direction you want, but like, what are those things that, that are the, the ba basic business building principles of like you listed off niching down and positioning and, you know, probably finances are in there too. And, you know, cash flow and uh, like all of these things, like what, what are those, what are the things or what's your favorite thing or the most light bulb momenty thing that you find that your audience needs to hear it needs to like either it's a mindset shift or it's something that they need to spend more time thinking about is does anything come to mind that's like the real yeah. game changer for them 
Totally. Two, two things that definitely come to mind that I always talk about in any of my, like a webinar free type of training. Um, so first, the first hump that we have to get over is that we have to educate them that freelancing is not going into the office 40 hours a week for one brand as a freelancer. Okay. And <laughs> because I, I learned that they need a lot of education on that. Like that's, that's something the industry has really trained people into. And it takes a minute to like unlock the possibility that you can actually work from home remote mm -hmm. in their head. Um, yeah. So first we have to get them believing that this is possible um, and get them believing that brands accept remote freelancers. There's a, um, a lot of people just think, Oh, brands don't No, you have to be in house. And guess what? There's a lot of old school brands out there um, or really big brands. It's hard to, it's hard to do remote freelancing for really big brands. They, they have the power and the leverage to say you have to be in house and they're often located in New York and they've got the talent pool. Right. So mm -hmm. um, we have to say, you know what? Yes. There's a lot of brands out there that don't accept remote freelancers. That's fine. They're just not your client. There's a ton of other brands out there. Once we get over those hurdles that this is possible and there are brands that allow this and many brands that prefer slash need this, mm -hmm. the two biggest things is niching down and pricing. So every fashion freelancer out there, no matter what services they're providing, they feel a tremendous amount of overwhelm that they have to do either the whole process I have to do, well, I don't know how to source or I don't know how to do pattern making. I can't freelance. No, that's not true. Actually, one of our most successful students exclusively does tech packs. Mm -hmm. That's literally all she does. Um, so to, let's define the term. So, because niching down is interpreted differently by different people. But you, oh, okay. Uh, so define it for us what you're with maybe with some examples, like what does, when you're advising, a fashion designer to niche down into their freelancing business. What does that mean? So I, my advice is I kind of have like two formulas that you can use to niche down. One is get really, really specific with the category that you're going to work in and you can be more broad with your services. So for example, one of our really successful students, she does everything from design through development. She exclusively works for women's cashmere sweaters <laughs> like that's so specific it. i love it right but yeah. but brands come to her and they say oh my gosh we want you because you know cashmere yeah we don't want just a sweater designer we want a cashmere sweater designer so her services are a little more broad she does design she does tech packs she helps with the factories all that stuff but she has a very very narrow customer mm-hmm category um mm -hmm. category is the term that we use in fashion like what's the category is it denim is it sweaters what have you so that's sort of formula one and then formula two is the opposite so you can be really really specific with your um your services and then a little more broad with the categories so for example one of our students exclusively does tech packs and she just loves doing tech packs and mm -hmm. Um, so she's a little more broad now. She's not doing like denim and handbags and lingerie, you know, those that gets really too broad, but active and lifestyle and athleisure, right? Mm -hmm. A little more broad on the category side, but very specific with her service. Right. And so, for... so that's, that's how I, I kind of define niching down. 
Perfect. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad we talked that through. So, uh, for longtime listeners, that is the equivalent of a vertical specialization versus a horizontal specialization in my lingo. Yeah. And I always talk about the etch a sketch. You can kind of dial mm -hmm. one up, but if you dial one way up, you probably can't dial the other one way up. Y yeah. You're probably going to play with it around till you find a sweet spot yeah. where one of them's dialed up kind of far, and the other one's probably not you know maybe yeah. one's middle of the middle of the road eventually you could get them both dialed up over time it's not impossible and it depends on it depends on a million things but yeah. but those two things generally speaking you want to dial one of them up and the other one can be a little bit more general so yeah. for folks who are who love like say software developers who just love you know, they're full stack developers they love the back end they love the front end yeah. they love the devops they love all that stuff it's like okay you can still be general in your skills if you get hyper focused on, you know, or, you know, growth stage or, or uh, right. venture stage startup develop. You know, get really specific about who you, you know, the category. Like, mm -hmm. who do you the help? Or what's, yeah, the yeah, type exactly. of brand. Yeah, maybe it's only like real estate companies or something. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. yeah. And we have and and I um and I, so I advise people to start there and then. As you grow, like you said, you can get really, really dialed up. Like one of our very successful students over time has gotten really, really specific. She does pattern making exclusively and she does it for sustainable, small, sustainable women's startups. So okay. it's very, very focused. Um, and she has found and she's been freelancing. She was actually one of my very, very early beta students. Um, she's doing tremendous she's doing very very well and she has slowly dialed it down and she goes i just turn away people that don't totally fit and my business just keeps growing and i'm like raising my rates and i'm booked out like three or four months in advance at any given time and mm. she was the more specific i got it just got better and better yeah it seems yeah. counterintuitive i know because it feels it does. like people you're, get so scared <laughs> yeah like they're turning away opportunities yeah you know, it's like why why just fish in a barrel instead of in the ocean it's like well yeah because it's really hard to find fish in the ocean. <laughs> yeah. So, all right. So that's fabulous. And yeah, that so completely maps. Yep. And then, so you also said pricing, which is pricing. probably my favorite topic. Yeah, so I know. So I was a little scared to come on the show, Jonathan, because <laughs> you're called ditching hourly. And um, I do sometimes advise people to price hourly. And I can explain that if you'd like. But sure. that aside, um, the, the, it, everybody in fashion wants to price really cheap. Um, brands are, there's a lot of underpay in our industry and there's a lot of competition, right? So there's all these people lined up for these jobs. And so brands can get away with this. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's always going to be the brands that want the cheap talent. And yep. I tell, I tell people that's fine. They're not your client. Um, because there's brands that are happy to pay. And so the, the analogy I use, um, I, I could talk about the psychology of pricing all day long. I love pricing as well. Um, yeah. so the, the example that I always tell as I say, cheap is not, does not always look the most attractive. I say, you walk into a store and on one rack is a jacket and the sign above it says $20. And on the other rack is a jacket and the sign above it says $200. I go, you don't touch the jackets. They both essentially look the same from, you know, the distance. And I said, what are the immediate what do, what do you immediately think about each of those jackets? <laughs> right? You know where I'm yeah. going with this. Yeah, of course. The, the $200 one's jacket, better. <laughs> is cheap and it's going to fall apart and the yeah. fabric's junk and it's not going to fit well. And the $200 one, well, it must be great because it's $200. Mm -hmm. And so that's a really big aha moment, aha moment that people have. 
um, they still have a lot of fear around pricing and a lot of anxieties around pricing. Um, and there's still a lot of the mindset um, and, and maybe what we, that what people have been trained into, especially if they've worked for some, some, especially if they've worked for brands that have tended to pay not great and, you know, never give promised raises and that sort of thing. Yeah, if they've they worked in that down. environment. Yeah. There's a lot of psychology that, and, ta- and time it takes for them to build up the confidence that like, oh, this is possible. I can actually make better money and there's oh. brands willing to pay. Yeah, right. And so I, I love that analogy. Like if you look at the two jackets from a distance, you don't have a chance to really experience them. You can't really tell them apart. The one thing that you can really see as the difference is the price. Mm-hmm. You're automatically, and you know, there are some people, of course, that are going to be like, eh, I'll buy the $20 jacket. It's probably going to fall apart. But man, eh, what the heck? I'll buy five of them and that'll probably totally. last me longer than the $200 one. And they're not going to, they're not going to get me. I'm not going to pay for that extra, probably nothing. Yeah. And there is that kind of buyer. And that's a terrible mm-hmm. kind of client. Like mm-hmm. you don't want that client that sees totally. you because you're the jacket. In case it's not obvious, dear listener, you're the jacket. And you don't want someone that's just like, ah, eh, they're disposable. I'll get like five. Yeah. It, it'll be fine. Yeah. Right. So you need, this is what I'm always talking about when I say, you know, you, you can send that, you know, sending a high uh, premium price signal is extremely powerful. You do need to back it up and you do need to appear meaningfully different in some way so that they can rationalize that purchase after the fact. So there's a lot going on there, but a hundred percent, right. You are everyone. I love that example, especially if you're industry, because they're automatically, they get it. Yeah. Yeah. They get it right away. Yeah. And I also cool. say to them too, I go, you know, if you're a ham sketcher, which not everybody is, but do you go to the art store and just say, I want the cheapest markers? Or do you go to the fabric store if you're going to sew something and just say, I want the cheapest fabric? Or when yeah. you go to buy your computer, do you just say, I just want the cheapest computer? No, you often right. think that the cheapest is not the best. And so right. you you do some research and and you find something often in the middle or maybe even on the high end because that's, you want that maybe it's just the perceived value. Maybe it's the value that, that it actually delivers. Whatever it is, there's a lot of psychology behind that decision. And it's not always, and sometimes you do buy the cheapest because sometimes we just do. And again, yeah. like you said, that's not your client. Right. Yeah. And and it, and someone, we're going to geek out on this. I'm going to try not to geek out on this too much, but you just raised a great <laughs> point, which was that a, a person is not just cheap or not cheap. Mm-hmm. Right. So like a, someone who, someone who you know owns a business that uses recycled like they take the envelopes from their junk mail and they rip up the envelopes to use as sticky notes as notes in the office mm. but drives to work in a g-wagon mm. like that that's that person exists right like that's mm-hmm. a kind of person so if if the buyer who's looking at you as an interchangeable cog in the machine they you know they might be um, they might be cheap about that, but not something else. Or there's someone who is like super, it's very important to them to save money elsewhere so they can invest in the best fashion designer they can afford for the mm-hmm. situation that they're in. Totally. But anyway, yeah, I don't, it's like, this is so cool, but you touched on something that I, I'm way more interested in asking you about, which is the confidence. So uh, yeah. in like, say in your pro, I don't know anything about your program. I don't even know what it's called. You can talk, you can tell us about that, but yeah. it, how do you help folks like this who have been ground down probably much worse than software developers? Because software developers in large part are, they're breathing they're fairly rare, well rare air. Yeah, very, right. Yeah. So yeah. for somebody who's been ground down because they want to get famous in this sexy industry, 
like what, if that's the right term, it, then, <laughs> yeah. then how would you, if you do, like, how do, how do you help them? How do you open their eyes to the fact that they do have skills that would be valued by the right person? And the trick is find the right person, not change what you do or undercut yourself or, you know, that kind of thing. Like, where do you, what kind of material do you have on helping people generate that confidence? I mean, I think I always talk about confidence as a muscle, right? Um, and when it comes to pricing, like this is not a muscle that you've ever exercised. So <laughs> yeah. you can't like go out tomorrow and run a marathon, meaning you can't like go out tomorrow and start charging $500 an hour or $1,500 for a tech pack. Is it possible to get there? Totally. But it's a little bit of a muscle. Um, it's funny. I just did a, we did a five day live training back in January and we sent out some surveys afterwards to get some data. And so I was reading the surveys and someone said, you know, I obviously was sharing case studies and stuff. And, and someone said, I just actually don't think it's possible that you can make that much money. And I'm like, well, these are real people. I'm not making these numbers up. So you, there's a balance, right, between what's possible and what they will actually believe and what they will actually have enough confidence to go after. Because I think that it can be very crippling for me to say, charge this much, and they're going to be so crippled by that number that they're never going to do anything. Yeah. Versus, okay, what we're going to do is, and I've got all the pricing strategies in, in, in the program and stuff, but like... The quickest and easiest one, um, your price should at least make you a little bit uncomfortable. If you're not at least a little bit uncomfortable, it's too low. Mm -hmm. So like I'd that's like that. the quick, right? That's like the quickest and easiest starting point. And then you get comfortable with that price. You're like, okay, maybe you get like one or two or three projects or clients with that. And then you use strategies to slowly raise that. And you raise and you raise and it's this muscle right that you exercise and today you're going to run a half a mile and then next month you're going to be running three or you know however that relates to the pricing thing but you will build up to this and and then another thing that i'm a really big proponent of which is something we've been really conscious to build into our program is um having that support network in that community around you because it can be very easy to get you know stuck in in a silo or a vacuum where you don't have anybody to bounce this off of and you're like, oh my gosh, am I crazy to ask for this number? And again, it can become really crippling to where you just do nothing. It, we see that a lot. And so um, we have live coaching built in and we've got um, you know, a, a private Facebook community um, with a really, really phenomenal group of students. Um, like one of our students just told me that starting in 2023, she decided to raise her prices again and per the encouragement of her peers inside of our program, she's raising it 40% mm -hmm. and she's not gotten any kickback. Yeah. Like the projects are still coming and they're still saying yes. And she's still booked. And yet she said to me, she goes, I would not have done that. I would not have had the confidence to do that if I didn't have these other people around me, like cheerleading me on. Mm. Yeah. So that's a huge component for, for our community. We're mostly female. So I don't, you know, I, I, I think you software tends to lean more male. Obviously there's females. My community and our audience is about 95% female. So it might differ in terms of how much you need that moral support from when, you know, males to females, but that's a really, really big component for us. Yeah. 
We I have a sort of similar thing that's it's I think maybe a little bit less pronounced and it's less uh, cl clear lines, but I do notice that folks that are from sort of emerging economy countries where software development is perceived as a real commodity, mm -hmm. they and and are, are you know just living in an environment such that they cannot believe that someone mm. like the same thing like totally. Like, and it it's almost like there's almost this anger is not the right word um there's a, a bunch of money mindset things that crop up which is for example um they might recognize and admit or believe that someone is making that much money but they think it's like evil so oh yeah like, that's not fair it's way easier oh. it shouldn't they shouldn't be charging that much oh and uh, it's it's fascinating. There's all of these like stories, these money stories. It's unbelievable. Like people think, oh, it's numbers. It's just math. It's like, no, it's yeah. not. And I've not, you know, I've not come across that in our community. And we, I, I do, I do a lot of surveys and customer research and and talk to people a lot. And um, I've never heard anyone say that. There's a classic one. Um, uh, there's a, a website called Hacker News, hn.com, and and uh, it's like Y Combinators for online forums. And and there's a classic one where. It was like this giant flame war of this guy that said he was charging like $40,000 for a single page WordPress site and people jumped on his throat instead mm. of being like, like, tell me more instead of being like, yeah. tell me more and like, yeah. or like, or asking something like, well, what benefit did that provide to your, your buyers? Like how, mm. how did that make sense? Like, instead of trying to understand it, the attacks were like, like he was a criminal. Mm -hmm. and how dare you? How dare you? Right. <laughs> That's so easy to do that. Yeah. How dare you charge that much money for something that's so easy? And I thought he did a really good job explaining why that was the wrong way to look at it. Mm -hmm. uh, but there is this thing that so that's a that's a more common thing where I'll see people they'll be exposed to actual numbers and certain people will just be like that's outrageous. They're offended. Mm. Like that's outrageous. Yeah. And I have like, a sorry, go ahead. It's like no, I mean, look at the value. Like first of all, the person who's getting that outrageous number position themselves as the safe option for this buyer who is clearly very wealthy and doesn't really care about the money that much, but trust this person, mm -hmm. not every WordPress developer in the world, but trust this person kind of like your, your cashmere person. Mm -hmm. Like we could go with any old sweater designer, but we want the cashmere person mm -hmm. because it feels risky to do something else and you will pay a premium to work with someone that feels less risky it feels like they're going to have they deliver a better outcome even though it's theoretically possible that someone else could get you there it's like the experience of getting there and the likelihood of getting there in one piece so to speak is a major factor in the purchase decision like like yeah. when you yeah, i always talk about like you can take the train from from you know boston to new york and you can ride in the quiet car or you can be strapped to the front of the train <laughs> and yeah. You'll but get there both ways. What's the difference? Yeah. Strapped to the front of the train's a lot less expensive. And it's like a lot of people don't want to be strapped to the front of the train. Yeah. And they'll pay more to be in the quiet car. So if you present yourself as this, there's this secondary dimension to the experience. It's like it's not just about getting to New York. It's about the experience of getting there and all of the things that go into it. And certain yeah. things are just worth more to people who have the money to pay for them. Anyway, I'm, you're going to. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, one of the, like I, and I always teach people too. I'm like, when you're more niche, you can pay more. Like we ha I had another student who um, specifically does lingerie bras for 
small back, meaning like the 32 or the 34 around, it's like between a 30 or a 32 around. So it's like really small around the rib cage in the back, but then large bust. Like that's her niche. And she doesn't, she doesn't do regular size. She does like 30 to 34, like double D plus and above. So specific. Right. But guess what? Like Lululemon sought her out because they're like, we want someone who understands that body and who can create us like the best fitting thing possible. Um, I always use the example and, and, and they're willing to pay more. Right. I always of use course. the example. Like I, I tell people, I go, you have to think about in your personal life. Of course, there's things you're going to be cheap on. That's fine. We all have places where we save money, right. but there's places where we spend. And for me, I live in the mountains now, so I don't do this anymore. But when I lived down in Denver in the city, I spent $179 a month on my yoga membership because it was a hot yoga studio and I loved it. And every class I went to, I knew exactly what I was going to get. And it was exactly what I needed. I could spend $19.99 and go to 24 hour fitness and get yoga, but (laughs) very different experience. Yeah. And that's where I chose to spend money. And, and some brands are going to choose to spend money on you because you are that you do one thing and you do it really, really well. And you're Mm going to create a beautiful experience for them and you're going to get them results. Um, Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so counterintuitive. And and this is exactly why I love having folks from different industries on the show because they're like, we're all singing the same tune. Right. And it Mm -hmm. it appears to work everywhere. Mm -hmm. And I'm not surprised by that because in, if you think of your, your listener, if you think of your purchasing behavior, there are certain things that you splurge on. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, like Heidi said, there's, you know, you don't, you might be cheap about some things, not others. I know I am. There's certain things that I couldn't care less about. And so like cars, I don't don't care about cars. I just get Mm -hmm. a reliable car. (laughs) It's it's not a status thing for me. I just don't care. Yeah, me too. And so it's like, it's, but at other things, like, you know, a miter saw for the garage, I found, I like (laughs) literally looked for the most expensive one. Yeah. Right. Because I didn't want to chop my hand off. Right. I wanted the one that was safest, most like, and I didn't feel like researching for a year so i just looked for a really expensive one it was a name i had heard of yeah and i'm just that's i'm gonna it's gonna be great it's gonna be a dream every time i use it yeah so yeah it's same thing with other certain tools i'll spend tons of money on yeah other stuff doesn't matter just don't care about it so if you so if you position yourself you know to land that that plane if you (laughs) position yourself as a thing that somebody really cares about but like you're the one you're the the go-to person for small back bras or whatever you call it then yeah. then it's like if i mean it could be it is possible let's maybe you've got some failure stories too but like it could be that you pick something that you happen to be good at good at or like doing that no one cares about yeah that's it, true that's it true. is possible i can't think of an example but i'm sure i've heard them yeah there's so I'm many counter examples um i mean i can't think of one to, to be honest most of the the failure examples I can think of are that people are, they're really broad. Like they'll come to a coaching call and they're like, well, I was thinking about my niche being women's ready to wear. <laughs> I go, I was like, that's literally could be like, like 80% of the clothes in the market. That's like a billion dollar business. <laughs> yeah. At, and market, I mean. so I see way more of that right. than I see of, um, I went too small and I didn't get any business. I mean, one of our students, um, she lives in India and she um, spent many years working in on the factory level designing custom lace. So she literally is designing the lace. Wow. 
at the factory and she was like i'm For just pennies. not um no she was doing okay, okay um okay. it wasn't quite that situation um okay. i i do know those stories um <clears throat> and she said you know i i'm just not sure that i can find any brands that are specifically going to need or warrant custom design lace because there's you know large production minimums and stuff and I said, you know what? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But here's where maybe you could start. Look at a high-end lingerie who they have the money to invest in the product because they're selling it for a premium. And they want that really cool story to probably sell alongside. Like, hey, we just did this custom lace. And their customer probably cares about that, right? right. Because yeah, it's exactly. so specialty. And um, she did wind up. Um, I think the next month or two, I wound up talking to her on a call and, um, she, I think she had landed one project and she was in talks with another one. And she was, I kind of can't believe it. I'm like, mm -hmm. you don't, you just don't know. And I don't, I don't know the lace market. I mean, I worked in active and athleisure and golf and stuff, so I don't know lace for anything, but, um, they just get so scared to go so narrow yeah. because they're like, Oh, but I'm going to turn away clients. I'm like, well, yeah, you are. But guess what? The ones that you don't turn away are going to be like begging to work with you. Right. I had, you'll like this story. There's a guy in my my community, Ditcherville, who he, he is, there's a wins channel when so, like something really goes right for somebody, they can come in sure. and just like drop it and say, like, yeah. you know, and have people ask some questions about it. Yeah. And uh, he was like, oh, he was like, I'm too horribly paraphrasing, but he was like, he was like, you're going to laugh, but. Uh, I was going to, I set out to prove Jay Stark, me wrong by niching down on high performance F sharp development, which you've <laughs> surely never heard of. Cause I've never even heard of it. No, I haven't heard of that. And, and he was like, and lo and behold, his calendar filled up with appointments. Right. Yeah. The more he got hyper niche and all of a sudden he's booked. It doesn't always work. No, it problem, doesn't. You're right. Right. But the problem isn't. When it doesn't work, it's not because it's too specific. It's just something that no one is looking for. Yeah. If you can find something specific that someone is looking for, you will set your, you'll just be the one and only very yeah. relatively quickly. Yeah. So. Yeah. Like mm. that cashmere designer I was telling you about, <clears throat> I always say to people, I go, don't, you're not going to like get on Instagram and build out this beautiful profile and post every day and use the right hashtags and all these brands are going to come knocking down your door. Um, it just doesn't tend to happen that way, but she proved me wrong. She, <laughs> and I think it's cause she's so, is it not? I think I know it's cause she's so niche. She discovered this hashtag called like cashmere or naked or something like that is really kind of funny. <laughs> like I yeah, will yeah, only yeah. wear cashmere type right, of thing. Right, right, right. Right. And, um, so she started like posting that and I think she got like three new clients and they just like came to her cause they're like following this really niche hashtag. And they go and they see her profile and she and her her handle is literally the cashmere designer. Hmm. And they're like, boom, you're our person. Like, we, how can we pay you now? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so that I is how it stories. works. Yeah. When it works, it can be like magic. Yeah, yeah, it can. And and, and you're right. Sometimes it doesn't work. And I, I, I always see um, I'm not always convinced that it's just because there's not someone that needs what you want. I think there's a million variables behind why it might not be working. It's going to be hard uh, yeah, to diagnose. I agree. Yeah, there's a bunch of it could be that there are out there they're out there but they're not aware of you and you, there's no you easy way to make yeah. them aware. Yeah. 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 A lot going or on. Or how there. you're positioning yourself aside from your niche, all sorts of things. Mm.
yeah. Geez, we're gonna so. have to do a part two. I, I yeah, we are. Oh my gosh, I could gab with you all day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is so great. So, um, okay. So where can people go to find out more about what you're doing? If there's any, anyone listening who has a friend in the fashion space or is in the fashion space, I would be, I would love to know that first of all, Yeah. Uh, but also where can they go to find out more about what you're doing? Yeah. Um, if you just Google, so Heidi S E W I come up and all my resources, uh, my website proper is successfulfashiondesigner.com. Um, and if you just search that I come up, uh, I've got about 10 years worth of content on my site, a tremendous amount that needs to be edited and cooled down again. Um, I also have a podcast called Successful Fashion Freelancer, where we talk shop all about freelancing. So for for people listening, if you're in into the freelancing component of of the fashion industry, that would probably be the best place is the podcast. Perfect. Fabulous. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me, Jonathan. It was really, really great to chat with you. Same here. All right, folks, that's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark, and I hope you join me again next time for Ditching Hourly. Bye. Hey, Jonathan again. Do you have questions about how to improve your business? Things like value pricing your work instead of billing for your time, or positioning yourself as the go-to person in your space, or maybe productizing your services so you never have to have another awkward sales call or spend hours writing another custom proposal. Book a one-on-one -on -one coaching call with me and get answers to these questions and others in the time it takes you to get ready for work in the morning. Best of all, you're covered by my 100% satisfaction guarantee. If at the end of the call, you don't feel like it was worth it, just say the word and I'll refund your purchase in full. To book your one-on-one -on -one coaching call, go to jonathanstark.com call, C-A-L-L. That URL again is jonathanstark.com call. Hope to see you there.